This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Flashbacks as narrative beats. The science fiction films of 1984. And my latest Austin book raid. What comes between Once Upon a Time and Happily Ever After? Every dramatic, heartbreaking, and amazing twist and turn of every fairy tale ever told, that's what. Exactly! That's why our friends over at Atlas Games made the storytelling card game Once Upon a Time. Players create an exciting story together using the card elements from fairy tales. It encourages creativity, decision-making, and cooperation. This classic design by James Wallace and Andrew Rilston has been called one of the top storytelling games of all time. Some might even say the greatest storytelling game of all time. Once Upon a Time is about princesses overcoming danger, foxes dueling pirates, kings searching for lost crowns, and every other fairy tale plot players can imagine. Players tell their own fairy tale using elements on the cards and try to steer the conclusion toward their secret ending. Themes can be all-ages friendly or more mature, depending on the players at the table. Go over to atlas-games.com by May 31st and use coupon code ONCE2023 to get a free expansion when you purchase any three Once Upon a Time titles. You know what, Robin? I'm going to go to the game store. I'm going to buy some dice. Probably pick up some Doritos. You know what? Maybe some miniatures. I'll, uh, when I'm at the game store, pick up some miniatures and then I'm going to swing by the record store and see if they have a big vinyl foldout of, uh, Frampton Comes Alive because that's such an underrated album, even though it was like a massive bestseller. Wait a minute. Is this an origin story? It's a flashback, it's Robin. It's a flashback. It's a flashback. We're flashing back from the gaming hut at the behest of beloved Patreon backer Kelly Fisher who asks, are flashbacks and or side scenes without PCs, given as intentional meta development for the players, suitable for narrative downbeats a la Hamlet's hit points beat analysis? I have this worry that because they're either timeline detached or outside character experience, they won't accomplish the same things as a more linear downbeat as far as escalating tension, etc. Are there specific ways to use these types of scenes to enhance the impact of the particular beat I'm trying to hit. Wow. Well, this could be the dramaturgy hut by now. Right. This is quite the narratology question, Robin. You are the Hamlet's hit points Fonz at Origo. The, the originator thereof. Exactly. Yes. So, to unpack the question a little bit for the benefit of uh, the non-Kelly Fishers listening, what Kelly's talking about here are what I call directed scenes. And I've mentioned these in a bunch of different places, including the fourth edition Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, speaking of hip new storytelling games <laughs> and the idea there is that you just assign a scene for the players to play out or maybe a player says hey can i flash back uh, and i think a a very proactive player who might also be a gm <laughs> mm -hmm. might do that and i'd certainly encourage players to do that but not just scenes that occur with those characters in the past but as I, again as suggested Sometimes you can do it with other characters. So one suggestion is if you have a horror scenario where it's going to take a long time for the investigators to get to anything scary and it's going to take a while to invest them in it, have them play, you know, the equivalent of the X-Files or Supernatural Cold Open where you see the poor victims before they get eaten by the alligator man or, or your two or stats are attractive and canadian <laughs> yes what, whatever that might might be so again that gives the players a sense that first of all they can act as authors in this world that they can jump around between perspectives if they want but also it gives them a, a stake in the action because they know something horrible happened to these other people and therefore it can happen to them when they arrive on the scene or they can even if they're relatively confident that the alligator person isn't going to eat them they still feel for that other person right and so ken is i've used this on a number of occasions the main drawback that i think it would have is not that it doesn't work as a downbeat or doesn't deliver the emotional note that you want but just that it if players aren't experienced doing it 
they're somewhat taken aback to be given what is sort of a an improv storytelling assignment, and it takes them a while to, to get into it. I have not necessarily found that, although, again, I have terrific players in both of my groups of players, and so maybe it's me, maybe it's University of Chicago, I can't say, are generally kind of eager to try something that's a little bit outside the norm that isn't just the standard well, I guess we'd better go talk to the cops adventure. And if you can get a, a cut scene, if you can get a, a side bit, I try not to do dialoguing NPC scenes because those are terrible and boring. Even if I give them, you know, you are the general and you are the necromancer and argue about who gets to guard the frontiers of the, of Montana. It's still, you know, I, I find that either the players are a little bit diffident or it's harder for them to provide any, any real narrative meat or worse yet, they provide so much narrative meat that now suddenly Montana is the core of the game, even though it was meant to be a little sidelight on what the necromancer will get up to. So there's, there's dangers with the two NPCs talking scene that I've encountered, but a, a flashback involving either a player or involving, you know, a, a literal, as you say, cold open. I've done those both to some uh, success. And it is always fun, I think, for the players to be thrown into the roles of NPCs they already know exist and can play because they've played with them. Generally not villain NPCs, but good NPCs or at least somewhat helpful ones. And so it's sometimes fun to say, well, you guys have talked to this beat cop a lot. You're playing the beat cop and now you're playing the priest who you've also talked to. And here's what your conversation's about. Let's do it and see what they say. And that's sometimes kind of fun. My players often like to sort of build out the sort of emotional reality of the NPCs a little bit, and I enjoy watching them do it. Now, to get to the downbeat part of that in the Hamlet's of Points uh, beat analysis, the idea there is that the narrative is more engaging if there's a somewhat unpredictable rhythm of up notes and down notes, and the up note moves the narrative in the direction that you, as a passive reader or viewer, want it to go, and the down note takes it away from that direction toward the thing that you were fear will happen. Mm -hmm. And essentially, I think what happens when you ask people to run scenes that their main player characters are in, as long as there is a discernible hope and fear, and the events move toward fear, that gives you the downbeat that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Because people attach very readily to a narrative. And as you will know from having ever watched an ensemble TV show or movie, that you can very quickly hop in a w relatively well-crafted piece of work from caring about this character A's situation and what you hope and fear for them, and then over to character B's hope and fear. And so if it is your concern that people feel tension or fear or anxiety, something else that they will be able to relieve later on in the narrative, perhaps uh, by punching someone or discovering what's going on or whatever it is, just make sure that it's clear what the thing they fear is. For example, the alligator person. There you go. The, if you have it a cold open and people are being eaten by the alligator person, that's taken care of. And so I think this is one of those things that I think generally will take care of itself just in the way that you're unconsciously crafting the narrative because that's how narrative works, which is why mm -hmm. beat analysis describes it that way. And if you then run something and you go, well, that kind of fizzled, right? The conversation between the necromancer and the the general on the on the rampart, I guess that just didn't really go anywhere because it wasn't clear to the players why they cared, right? And right. so you could make a dialogue scene work, I think, if you make sure that there are stakes involved and that, you know, if the general is unpersuaded that something disastrous will happen and that disastrousness is A, you actually like and care about the general and don't want something to bad to happen to them, or more likely in a role-playing context that oh no, this is now trouble for us that this yeah. didn't get resolved the way we wanted it. That now the borders of Montana are crawling with liches or something and we have to get to Butte for the adventure. Now, it can be surprising, even watching you know, fiction or reading books, quite often there is like, well, why do I care about this? Or, or more often, you set me up to care about A and now you're asking me to care about B and it's not quite as interesting and I'm disengaging from the narrative. And so I guess that is the other ingredient of this is is to make sure that it strongly relates to the main thrust of the scenario and secondly to make it 
clear to the players that it relates in some way because otherwise i think that's when you get detachment right that you yeah if it's not clear why this is happening or why you care then you don't know what you hope or what you fear and the trouble with that is that it's hard i think in some games especially ones with an element of surprise or suspense to do one of those side scenes without sort of giving the game away. So if the surprise is the boundaries of Montana are full of liches, you can't run the scene between the general and the necromancer and then have the ending reveal the surprise. You just have to sort of hope that people remember from, you know, three sessions ago or however long it was. Oh, right. The necromancer won that argument. And that's why, oh, that's why all these army guys are, you know, suddenly covered in a purple phosphorescence and moaning all the time. I get it now. But asking them to piece together a clue that their characters weren't at or uh, an information or worse yet, an emotional beat that their characters weren't at is sometimes kind of a big ask because you're also asking them to correctly, I think, involve themselves as completely in the narrative as they can and spend a minimum amount of time sort of thinking about story structure, right? Right. Uh, Now, flashing back to the beginning of the segment, we are also talking about flashbacks. And so Mm -hmm. this is a subset of the side scene, which solves problem number one. It's like, I don't know why the player characters care about this. Well, the player characters are in this. Mm -hmm. The problem then becomes what sense of suspense am I going to have around this thing that just establishes a fact from the past? It's one thing if you're having a flashback to something that you were amnesiac about and you're discovering something new to yourself, but having a scene where you, you know, you play out, you know, your parents being gunned down in an alley and that's why you're Batman, that can be either something you ask the player to dispatch themselves in a quick, and I do mean quick little monologue mm. because you don't want it to go on forever and bore everybody else. But that inherently, if you're assigning them a moment that is a downbeat, that'll take care of itself and get out. The next more complicated version of that is something where you're establishing something that happened in the past. You know that everything, uh, that it can't change the timeline for the character unless you're playing a time travel game in which case this is a whole different segment. But the (laughs) trick there is to, again, I think, make it fast and make it clear why the other players care about this, because I think that's a pretty good metric as as vicarious watchers. If they will feel bummed out to learn this thing from the person's past, uh, which then again has to obviously feed into the narrative and have something that you can then take that emotional knowledge and pay it off and somehow, you know, rectify the trauma or whatever. Yeah, I do. I should, I guess, plug my flashback mechanism for Vampire Memoriam, where you get to play out one of those scenes like in Highlander, where they remember back to a, a thing that happened. And in Vampire, you're generally playing for a goal to be revealed or unleashed in the main game. Oh, I made friends with this guy. This is how that happened 100 years ago. I, you know, salted these coins away in the basement of this building, you know, uh, when Capone was coming after me. Oh, and now I'm playing out that adventure. And first of all, it gives you a little mini adventure in a sense that your vampire is very, very old, but also it is supposed to pay off in the game. And the way that that works is one player obviously plays the remembering vampire and the other players take the role of the various NPCs that they encounter and are either adversaries or allies or whatever it happens to be. And that invests them in it as opposed to the player saying, oh, I remember I hid those coins, which is, you know, it works, but it's kind of flat and narratively arbitrary. Whereas if they've played out the adventure where they had to dodge Al Capone's gangsters with their garlic bullets to hide those coins, then they sort of feel like they earned those coins instead of just saying, oh, now I have an extra dot of resources. Right. And the trick there is to add a little procedural element where if they fail, it doesn't make the whole scene pointless Mm -hmm. uh, because I just said pointless. But if they succeed, they get a higher level of advantage. Right. And so that can give them, uh, again, you know, that introduces suspense. You don't know how it turned out. And again, you want to set it up so that, you know, whether there are, you know, one chest of coins or two chest of coins doesn't change A, what has previously been established with the characters or B, throw the entire storyline out of whack, but Mm -hmm. is a nice, cool bonus. And that way the now that introduces the idea that there can be an upbeat as part of a flashback. But of course, that's good, too. Yeah. And you have the same issue, whether it's an up or a downbeat after a flashback or side scene is sooner or later, you're going to need to reverse that rhythm so that, you know, if 
they did better than expected and have two boxes of coins. Well, then it turns out that, you know, later on, well, someone will try and steal one of the boxes of, of coins or there'll be, you know, a, a cursed item in it or, or whatever it is, you know, a reversal that mm-hmm. increases the challenge and continues that uh, emotional up and down rhythm. And speaking of continuing rhythms, the rhythm of this show is once we have thoroughly answered questions to stop talking and start talking about something else, which we'll do after this exciting commercial. The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders, but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe one-to-one system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need to run a one-player, one-GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. That can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. The carpet by now is a vibrant purple, and the air is still full of cigarette smoke, maybe a little weed smoke, depending on which theater you're walking into, but we're walking into the cinema hut, where we're going to take our seats in the center aisle, we're going to lean back, and we're going to settle in for another installment of Science Fiction Cinema Essentials, and in this case, we're still in that peak year of human civilization, 1984. And Robin, I believe, as we teased yesterday, we've got a passel of messiahs coming along, right? Yes, the new rising burgeoning theme of the 80s is messiahs. You can read that as a symptom of uh, the, the Reagan era, although not all of these are particularly Reaganite in their outlook. And the first one is an indie movie messiah and that is the brother from another planet directed by john sales we already said 1984 we're probably not going to get out of 1984 in this episode and stars uh, joe morton as a uh, an alien being who comes to earth as long as he's wearing footwear you can't tell he's an alien he's got three clawed toes on each foot but other than that he looks like uh, a young joe morton and in the indie movie and 80s manner it's a sort of a fun sort of a ramble through, in this case, New York and uh, the subculture, particularly the African-American subculture, because the issue of race and being an alien is in the forefront of this. And even more so when two men in black played by uh, John Sayles himself and an unrecognizably young David Strathairn, they deliver uh, funny, cool uh, performances with sort of off-kilter motion. They're coming to take our hero back to captivity. And of course, yes, he's a messiah. He heals people. He heals video game machines. And it follows the pattern started by man who fell to earth, but with a sort of loose uh, vibe of a John Sayles film. And I think the funnest thing about it is that because he's decided that the alien can't speak any human languages, we have sort of almost, you know, we have one-sided dialogue. We have sort of silent film level of acting from Joe Morton. And that is the sort of layer of, you know, at a degree of difficulty type thing that John sales is always doing with these otherwise sort of genre films, even ones that are sort of, you know, straightforwardly message movies. He's still adding a little degree of technical difficulty to make the film, I think, continually interesting and sort of continually paying off. And that's one of the interesting things about this that is maybe not even the case in some of these other films that there's a little extra complexity on there although it won't be the case of the one after this one right because yeah, his his silence reflects 
back on the people and is why this is a vehicle for social observation. Right. Now, this uh, next one is one that I did not see. I've been unmessiahed by Jeff Bridges in this case, but it's a John Carpenter film and kind of a, I think maybe a little bit of a departure from his oeuvre, Robin, Starman. It's it's very much a departure and it's another alien messiah comes to Earth. In this case, he is summoned by the message aboard Voyager, but his ship crashes and so the alien being then, in order to find a physical body, clones the body of Karen Allen's dead husband, who's played by Jeff Bridges, and romance and fleeing from the UFO alien hunting authorities commences. So again, it is the pattern established by man who fell to Earth and then made saleable by E.T. Uh, so this is the grown-up romantic drama version of uh, those films. And as you suggest, it's a it's not a total departure for Carpenter because it has, you know, an alien with powers and he has these magical silver balls that he can use to affect miraculous works, including works of self-defense. Uh, but it follows that pattern. So this is that movie primarily as a romance and about longing. And uh, at the time, people said, oh, is John Carpenter going to go straight now? Is he going to make you know, regular prestige non-genre movies the way that Cronenberg later would. But he went back to making more clearly John Carpenter movies. And it's all about the romantic chemistry between uh, Jeff Bridges and uh, Karen Allen. And when you get around to it, I bet you'll like it. A movie that is not about romantic chemistry and not about Jesus. It's about a different leader of a great religion and is by a director who, when it came out, we did not say, oh, is this a new chapter for David Lynch? We said, oh, now David Lynch is bigger and in color and it is hours long. This is Dune, the original, except no substitutes. David Lynch Dune starring Kyle MacLachlan as Paul Atreides, the space messiah of the planet Arrakis. Those who do not know how Dune goes. I don't know if watching this film will tell you how Dune goes. But uh, I remember at the time they handed us out little uh, cards full of Dune information <laughs> backstory because mm-hmm. they're like, we just can't exposit enough in this mm-hmm. film. I'm sorry. Here you go. It is a visual feast. The sort of decadent space Habsburgness of Frank Herbert's universe has never been better visualized than by uh, the demented mind of our hero, David Lynch. There is... A really strong cast. I mean, Sting, I think, is the one that everyone remembers is Fade Rautha, but it's got Max von Sydow. It's got Dean Stockwell. It's got Virginia Madsden as Princess Irulan, who I suppose would have been better used if there'd been a sequel. It's an amazing piece of work. And again, I think mostly practical effects. I mean, they built giant models of sandworms and Harkonnen ships and whatnot. It was not a lot of CGI in uh in this dune and it is just uh, you know i think as dune should be kind of a drug trip of a movie so i think this is our biggest split on whether something is essential or not right lynch's dune is terrible <laughs> and i think if you have seen it a long time ago you may have forgotten how terrible it is you may remember the few very vivid scenes like sting who has almost nothing to do or kenneth mcmillan floating around as the over-the-top Baron Harkonnen, who uh, sort of suggests Frank Booth in Blue Velvet, which is coming up. But it's actually an actively terrible film. Part of that is it's based on Dune, which is terrible. And <laughs> if people want my 15-part uh, series on why Dune is terrible, the patron level will have to get up to around $5,000 and stay there for uh, several months. But it is the problem of trying to adapt that over-complicated version of the simple story that is Dune. It solves the problem of how long Dune is by basically spending regular time on the first half of the novel. And then it's like, you know how you're writing on a sign <laughs> and you run out of room and you have to make the letters smaller? <laughs> but like Kyle McLaughlin is a dud in this. His, the, his Kyle McLaughlin-ness will have to again wait to Blue Velvet to surface. But if you have not seen Dune and you're thinking, people kind of like it or they remember it well, and maybe, you know, it's David Lynch. Maybe it's good. I'm going to say you can skip it. It's terrible. All right. Well, there we have it. If that's not a David Lynch movie, I don't know what is. But the next movie is one in which the Messiah-ing is the proper Reagan-American Messiah because he comes to kill a robot. And it's in James Cameron's Terminator 
1984. We talked about this as a horror cinema essential, which it is. But of course, it's also a science fiction film. It has time travel and a killer robot and a actually fairly interesting time travel sort of concept, which is that a killer robot is trying to murder the uh, mother of the resistance against killer robots after the computers have taken over the world and destroyed it. Right. So the savior is played by Michael Bean. The right. uh, target is Linda Hamilton. And of course, the Terminator is played uh, famously by in a career-making role by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Yeah, so it works as a pursuit thriller, works as an action movie. When we find out what's inside the uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger-shaped outside of this Terminator, it becomes even more clearly a horror movie. It's uh, brilliantly executed, got a very much a science fiction premise. Harlan Ellison would point out that premise was stolen from him, but <laughs> nonetheless... A, a landmark in science fiction cinema and one of those things that uh, sets up a franchise that does not necessarily hold up to uh, multiple iterations. Although I understand there's another iteration coming later on this list that, that does hold up. Very well could happen. So n next comes something that I don't necessarily even think of as a science fiction movie, even though its whole through line that weaves together all of its punk indie rumination and, and character banter is a science fiction horror premise. We're talking about Repo Man from 1984 by Alex Cox, in which Emilio Estevez, a uh, sort of young slacker punker dude, gets a uh, job uh, repossessing cars and falls in with a mentor played by Harry Dean Stanton, gets to know a, a wise weirdo known by Tracy Walter, and it, I think, epitomizes its era and its satire of Reagan era consumerism, its punk attitude. Uh, but also there is a, a car with a trunk full of a mysterious alien substance that vaporizes anyone who opens it. And that car with the trunk is on a collision course with the rest of the movie in order to have a big ending. This is sort of, again, E.T., but it's a nihilist E.T., and it's one in which it's a punk E.T. as well, because E.T. is not coming to save Elliot. E.T. is just driving around in the back of a car, vaporizing people. And when he returns, if you're in the car, great. If you're not, also great. E.T.'s not bothered. That high concept sort of strings together the whole, all the nihilist set pieces, all the punk set pieces of the film in a remarkable way. It's sort of, you know, in, in, you take movies that are, as you say, all about their high concept. It's all about the time traveling robot. This is about almost everything except for the, the ET, the alien, the UFO, but the UFO is how you get through the story. And in that way, it's actually more similar, I think, to man who fell to earth or brother from another planet than it is a, you know, more conventional hunting the alien type movie of which there are zillions. Right. It, it would also rank highly, perhaps even more important to those categories than, than to science fiction on a cult movie essentials or an indie movie essentials uh, list. And finally, uh, for the last movie of 1984 and our last movie that we're going to talk about in 1984, it is 1984. This is the Michael Radford adaptation of the George Orwell novel, which it takes, I think, is a more faithful version of the novel because you have to be in 1984 and not in the 50s to do that straight up. It's oppressive production design is a big part of what makes it work. The central performance uh, by John Hurt, his sort of sense of pain and anguish make him the ideal lead for this. Uh, Richard Burton uh, represents the, uh, the voice of authority and of Big Brother. And interestingly, there's a little uh, callback to Fahrenheit 451 in that Cyril Cusack shows up again in this. The one oddity of it is that it prominently features a song by the Eurythmics. I love the Eurythmics, love this song, but it's very weird now in not 1984 to go and say, watch the trailer, which uses the music <laughs> extensively and go, this is the one element <laughs> that sold the movie, but is uh, somewhat incongruous with the entire rest of its aesthetic vision. Yeah, I mean... Not least because, you know, if it had been a bad band that was just popular in 1984, it actually would work because it would be the sort of prole art that Orwell is also criticizing in the novel. And you could say, oh, look, there we are, Mr. Mr. That's perfect. That's exactly <laughs> 1984. But instead, it's the timeless and wonderful Eurythmics. So it, it is a, a, a definite clash. But John Hurt is uh, maybe the performance of his storied career in this movie. And with a, 
you know, almost definitionally fairly thin or two-dimensional character in uh, Winston Smith. So it's just a an actor showcase over and above, as you say, an actually good adaptation of the novel and one with a really terrific and really horrifyingly brutal production design. I mean, if you want to know, you know, what cemented my not liking brutalism, you know, I watched that movie when it came out and uh, my dad was an architect and here ended the lesson. Right. And that follows uh, Truffaut's beginning to use brutalism as a, a visual signifier of totalitarianism and <laughs> well stalin i think began it first but sure right but I mean, in, in the aesthetic <laughs> realm of course because stalin thought it was great but at any rate her character of winston smith is a, a by nature has to be a passive character they're acted upon through most of the uh narrative and it's hard to think of another actor who would be able to keep you riveted the way that he does and so now uh, having finished the year 1984 and the film 1984, uh, we'll be back next week with um, more uh, science fiction essentials in, again, the gem-laden 1980s. But now it's time for us to stop listing movies and start listing books. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Make sure this podcast continues to exist as more than a flashback in your tragic backstory by joining such beloved Patreon backers as Jeremy French, John Kingdon, Kevin J. Maroney, Lewis R. Evans, and Toon Spew. I hear groaning. I hear moaning. And that moaning is coming from the mere mortal pieces of wood that make up the shelves, the shelves of Ken's bookshelf, because once again, Ken, you have raided a, an unsuspecting town and uh, hit various bookstores, this time in Austin, Texas. And uh, I believe you hit not one, but two half-price books locations. I don't know if two locations makes one full-price book. And you hit Austin Comics and Games. And uh, regulars know the drill. We're going to vicariously enjoy all the books you bought, because I'm going to list their titles, which you've kindly supplied me with, and you're going to tell me what you think is in them and why you bought them. And I think in one case, you've read it already, and I've read it too, so we'll both get to talk about it. But that book is not the first on our list, which is The Pharaoh's Treasure, The Origin of Paper and the Rise of Western Civilization by John Gaudet. And that sounds like that tells us what we need to know about it, right? It really does, except that Godet does a little bit of a trick play there. He's not talking about paper. He's talking about papyrus. And paper comes in at the very last chapter, or I think the second to last chapter. The rest of it is all about papyrus. I primarily picked it up for the notion of papyrus spreading out of Egypt, the, that there was papyrus libraries and maybe even attempts to grow papyrus outside the Nile Delta. That intrigued me and interested me. Gaudet is a biologist and an ecologist, so I think he's going to be stronger on what is papyrus and maybe not as strong on what is a scriptorium, but, you know, cross fingers. Anyway, it's a history of papyrus, and I don't have a history of papyrus, or I didn't until recently. Speaking of books where the title is doing all the planetary work, Rome Rules the Waves. A Naval Staff Appreciation of Ancient Rome's Maritime Strategy, 300 BCE to 500 CE, by James J. Bloom. This is the kind of book where if I see it on the shelf, 
it really has to be, you know, very expensive for me to not immediately pick it up. I am such a sucker for this level of military history, this sort of grand strategy over time, especially in the classical world. I, I love it all. And normally we think of Rome, obviously, as a great land power. We think of the legions. Well, Bloom makes the point that for a country that had no naval tradition, a people that had no naval tradition, they did a pretty good job of ruling the waves as well. This is, in his words, what if Alfred Thayer Mahan had written a history of Rome and that's what he's trying to do. And so it is less about Roman shipbuilding and less about even Roman ship tactics and more about ship deployment, ship strategy, and what that did to and for the economy of the empire. And that is a perspective that you don't see even in pretty good navalist histories of the classical world. So I was happy to snap that up. The self-explanatory titles keep on coming with A History of Japan in Manga, Samurai Shoguns in World War II by Kanaya Shinichiro. This is the one that I picked up at Austin Comics and Games, by the way, to give them their shout out. I picked it up and I thought, oh, this will be great. This will be segments or, or bits of manga that are take place in various Japanese historical eras, and they'll put them all together and it'll be a fun anthology. And when I opened it, no, it's not. It is actually an attempt to do something like a cartoon history of the universe, like Larry Gonick or my own Complete Idiot's Guide to U.S. History Illustrated, in which you're telling a history through sequential art. This cheats a little bit by having sort of text sections with tables and graphs and maps, but I love tables, graphs, and maps. And it also, it says uh, in the title there, Samurai Shoguns in World War II, World War II is very, very, very lightly treated. There is maybe two pages on World War II. The cartoon is about people on the home front hoping they don't get bombed by the Americans. <laughs> but the Samurai and the Shoguns nail it. Lots of detail. I still, I think I recommend this book for anyone interested in a, you know, getting caught up to speed on the history of Japan up until the part where every American knows already. Yeah, I, I can imagine there was a meeting where they said, can you throw on World War II for the English-speaking market? And the everyone was like, <laughs> so uh, really this is Samurai and Shoguns and up to maybe the Russo-Japanese War is what we're looking at for real. But again, that's a that's a good, solid history of Japan. It, it's a it's a country with a lot of stuff happening. And at the very least, you'll get to understand all the other manga that are not in this book. So that's nice. Right. So is there anything to say about the Renaissance, a short history by Paul Johnson that is not covered there, like it's secretly about papyrus? <laughs> no, it is a uh, uh, Paul Johnson has already written a terrific history of art. So uh, although Johnson, I think, is maybe most famous as a dyspeptic political commentator, the p politics and, uh, you know, current events of the Renaissance are one chapter. And then he wants to talk about literature and art and uh, the rise of humanism and all of those sorts of fun things. So be aware that if you were interested in which Medici stabbed which Sephorza, it's an even shorter history than the title indicates. Venetian Ships and Shipbuilders of the Renaissance by Frederick Chapin Lane brings us in both Renaissance and boats. So it hits a couple of themes we've already started with. All right. This is a, I guess, a classic of the field. It goes, uh, was originally published in 1934. So it's probably been superseded by some scholarship, but the basics of the Venetian arsenal and the ships that it produced, that's not going to be superseded. And that is sort of why I picked it up because it provides that sort of, you know, nugget of this is the industrial process. These are the ships that came out of it. If you are running a game set in Venice, as indeed I might, this is the sort of thing that is going to come in very handy to know and will provide endless amounts of good fun for people who are already interested in medieval ships. So I feel like it sells itself from the title. The fact that it was from 1934 is a bit of a facer, but it just means the illustrations are all decorous line drawings instead of cool photos, which is actually better. Uh, we're going to go to the Americas now with... A Country of Vast Designs, James K. Polk, The Mexican War, and the Conquest of the American Continent by Robert W. Mary. At the risk of raising the bunting of the politics head, I will say that James K. Polk has always been my favorite Democratic president, and this is about basically his foreign policy. I assume it touches on his reforms of the Treasury, which were also very important, but this is about him taking Oregon away from Britain and taking a third of Mexico away from Mexico and annexing Texas into the bargain and how he got it through a, a divided cabinet and how he dealt with James Buchanan being a big old wet pile of laundry. And it's, you know, sort of insider politics, but from, you know, 
1845. So it's got both the remoteness and the relevance that I think a, a fun 19th century history does. And again, I don't have a big book on Polk. I've got lots of books on the Mexican War, but nothing about that sort of high political background, and I thought that would be good. So if you want to do uh, Dallas with the serial numbers filed off in drama system, or possibly even a chronicle version of that that goes over generations, I bet you'd want to pick up The Big Rich, The Rise and Fall of the Greatest Texas Oil Fortunes by Brian Burrow. Yeah, this is where, where uh, the fact that I'm in an Austin, Texas half-price books shows up. This was in the Texan shelf, so I thought, I will look at this. As an Oklahoman, I bridle at the notion that all the great oil fortunes are Texas oil fortunes, but I grant that, you know, the Hunt oil fortune got up to a lot more shenanigans than even the Kerr oil fortune did, so I don't mind too much. It's really, you know, another bunch of robber barons, another bunch of uh, big spenders with uh, feckless, useless children. It's a story as old as America and probably as old as money, and this time, if I ever get around to running that oil patch unknown armies adventure that sprang full-blown into my head from watching there will be blood then this will be the backdrop for it it's a you know nested set of biographies and it's a who who did what to whom when so it's ideal for that kind of backdrop still on the texas shelf the texas rangers and the mexican revolution the bloodiest decade 1910 to 1920 by charles houston harris and lewis r sadler yeah this is a book this is an enormous volume. I mean, it's it's huge. It's the biggest physical book that I picked up. And it is by actual Texas Rangers who went and opened up the Texas Ranger archives. They went and opened up the Mexican government archives. And during the Mexican Revolution, Carranza kept trying to start a war with Texas, or at least with America, to unify the country behind him and also to steal some of Pancho Villa's thunder because Villa, of course, was also doing that. Everyone wanted to invade America to make Mexico love them. And the Texas Rangers, rather than involve the boring old federal government, fought back by just murdering all the Mexicans who they caught crossing the border, which does not stand up to modern construction, I think, legally. But it turns out that there was a lot more to that story, and that's all in that book. When I saw it, I, I thought hard do I want this book? I mean, obviously I wanted the book, but is this the book I'm going to get? I looked online and every other copy was four times the price that I paid for it. So this is if I'm ever going to buy a book about the Texas Rangers single-handedly fighting the Mexican government, which has a lot of story potential and maybe a little bit of game potential if you wanted to do a sort of a dark Western with some sort of horrible supernatural element down in there then I have to buy that book now, which is what I did. You saved three times over. Exactly. Now we're going to go from Texas to California and to a book that is about a bunch of people who each, I'm sure, has a book of their own written about them. That's The Moguls, Hollywood's Merchants of Myth by Norman Zerold. Speaking of games I might run, one of the possible games that is coming up after my Monday game completes is a Unknown Armies game set in the Golden Age of Hollywood that requires me to know more about the Golden Age of Hollywood. The Moguls are, you know, people like Daryl Zanuck and Irving Thalberg and the Warners and all those guys. They're part of what drives Hollywood into what it becomes, and knowing their power plays and foibles will make it easier to make them secretly all about secret magic and wild archetypal hooliganism. Longtime listeners know that if Ken sees a historical atlas that he doesn't have, he buys it, as happened with the historical atlas of World War I by Anthony Livesey. Yeah, this was a case where I kind of thought, I, kind, I think I have all these maps, and I opened the book a couple of times at random, and there was a much better treatment of the Eastern Front of World War One than there normally is in a historical atlas of World War One, And that sort of tipped me over to picking it up. As you implied, Robin, it is not a difficult tip, but it did have to happen. And I think, I haven't gone through the whole book, but I think that that it's going to be a valuable addition to my shelves for such things. Finally, a title that requires some explaining, The Road to Oxiana by Robert Byron. This is basically a Trail of Cthulhu source book. It's just in the form of a travelogue. Robert Byron was basically an art historian, and he heard that there was a lot of amazing sculptures and buildings deep in Central Asia, in the Oxiana of the title, and he thought he would go. So between 1933 and 1934, he travels from, you know, Venice 
deep into the first in the Middle East, then up into Persia, into Afghanistan, and finishes out in British India. And that is his journey. It is the journey of a appreciator of Muslim architecture. And so it is sort of a lyrical, almost like a dream journey. So I, I feel like you could have some uh, dreamlands fun if Byron is like slipping over the border to Lang, but instead of going uphill to the plateau, goes downhill to Inganok, that sort of action. And it's just a lot of this is the actual facts on the ground. If you want to go to Central Asia, if you want to go to Lang in 1934, how do you get there? Who, what camel guy do you talk to? And, uh, it's a beautiful language as well and became a somewhat influential uh, piece of right of literature over and above its value as a document of the time. And our first half of the pile has one more book on it. And that's The Secret War Against Napoleon, Britain's Assassination Plot on the French Emperor by Tim Clayton. I can't imagine why they would want to assassinate Napoleon. Yeah, he was such a nice guy. But yes, there was apparently two attempts on Napoleon's life, one in 1800 and one in 1804. I had known nothing about either of them, uh, which was a failure on my part, I readily admit. And fortunately, Tim Clayton comes along to provide not just the deets on those assassinations, but blaming them on the hated British and talking about the British propaganda campaign against Napoleon. And one of the interesting things about Napoleon is you can, we're all far enough from Napoleon that we can look at the way that the British manipulated public opinion in that war without it redounding embarrassingly to modern political decisions. And it might give you a little bit of a hint as to the sort of thing that obviously never goes on now. But it's also lots of cool covert action with cutlasses and codes in telescopes and that kind of thing. And it's just a cracking good spy story on the top of all of that. So who wouldn't want a secret war against Napoleon? I ask you. Well, in, in a completely arbitrary manner, we're going to break in the middle of the same subject, listen to this commercial and then be back with more of the uh, assassination beat. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X. In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlatha Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. And just like I promised, we're back for the second half of Ken's Bookshelf with Assassinations Anthology, Plots and Murders That Would Have Changed the Course of World War II, edited by John Grehan. So, I assume that from the title, uh, none of these assassinations actually happened, and maybe they're fodder for Ken's time machine? Yeah, they are, in fact, alternate histories. I pulled it off on the basis of the title, and then I saw that it was a bunch of alternate histories, and kept it clenched in my little hand. So we can't use it because they've already done it. Well, we can use it because they've already done it. We've used many alternate histories other people have done. It begins with the Tukhachevsky plot against Stalin, taking the theory that there was one, which is an interesting theory that I had not run across, and <laughs> ends with Operation Valkyrie, the attempted assassination of Hitler in 1944. With most of them, the bulk of the detail is the setting up of the assassination, so it has, I guess, some relevance for gamers who want to do that. And then a generally a page or two of the alternate history, which is, of course, what I'm buying it for. I object somewhat to a couple of the assassinations being just, wouldn't it have been cool if this guy had been assassinated and there's no contemporary plan 
to kill the guy. So I feel like that's cheating. You could just do that with anybody, but some of them are legitimate. I did not know that sort of assassination, such as Charles de Gaulle's plane nearly blew up and killed him while he was very mad at the British. And what would that have done? And that's sort of an interesting question. So there's, you know, six of one half dozen of the other, like all of these anthologies are, uh, some are stronger than others, but it's all grist for the mill, certainly. And uh, they managed to restrain themselves to just three assassinations of Hitler, which I think is, you know, really, you know, good for them. Yeah, you, you want to, you know, keep that within reasonable bounds. Next, mm-hmm. we come to Spymasters, the true story of the greatest female secret agent of World War II by William Stevenson. Not that William Stevenson, but the other William Stevenson. And who does he pick as the greatest female secret agent? He picks the legendary SOE agent and operative Vera Atkins. She was, you know, going into occupied Europe and shooting people. She was planning other SOE operations. She uh, had a very, I don't want to say crucial role in the SOE, but certainly a distinguished one. And for Dracula dossier players and listeners, she was born in Galatz, Romania. So there we are. If you're getting ready for your Dracula dossier 1940 adventure, Vera Atkins can show up with all manner of question marks by her dossier. I think she's just a terrific character anyway, and so it was nice to have a biography of her. Next, we come to the Green Berets in the Land of a Million Elephants, U.S. Army Special Warfare and the Secret War in Laos, 1959-1974 by Colonel Joseph Selesky. This is one of those books that I picked up because I already have a collection. Longtime listeners will know Lawrence of Arabia, other topics are just sort of magnetically accreting books to themselves by now. The Secret War in Laos fell out as I began my Fall of Delta Green campaign four years ago, and I thought, that's an interesting notion, that there was a secret war. One assumes everyone in Laos knew about it. What's that about? And I started picking up books on the topic. This one is told from the perspective of the Green Berets, as opposed to the CIA, and is... I, I have not read it, so I may be being a little unfair, but it sounds like Colonel Seleski is like, I don't see the problem. We went to Laos. We fought a war. We kept it secret. We won. And I feel like there's more to that story. In fact, I know that there's more to that story, but it is good to have the Green Beret half because that is the half that player characters in Fall of Delta Green are probably either playing or attaching themselves to. So it's just a, a good overview and probably has a lot of strong unit history stuff in it. I haven't read it besides to sort of page through and look at the foreword and the notes, but it's, uh, does it say what it is in the title? I feel like this says what it is in the title, Robin. So we're going to move from spies and secrets in history to a very famous spy in film with In Search of the Third Man by Charles Drazen. As always, Robin, I'm forced to remind you there are no spies in the third man. It is not a spy film. That said, it is my favorite movie. It is a timeless classic, and Charles Drazen basically gives a film history of its production, of its shooting, from Graham Greene selling the story to Alexander Korda, all the way through to convincing Orson Welles to show up, which was its own job, the negotiations back and forth with Selznick to uh, get the rights to, you know, Joseph Cotton and Alita Valley. It's just all about how the movie was made. Uh, of course, Carol Reed uh, comes off as the quiet, beautiful hero of it, as he deserves to. There's a whole chapter on the zither guy, who turns out to have just been playing at a party in Vienna that Carol Reed attended. That, and he said, Anton Karras, I think. Yeah, exactly. It turned out to be Anton Karras. But at the time, Reed hears the zither, and he is thinking, gosh, that's cool. We could probably use it for a bit of the movie. And he goes back to the party, and he says, who was the zither guy? And the woman who threw the party said, I don't know. You just hire the company, and they bring a zither guy. And so he had to track this guy through post-war, uh, burned-out, bombed-out Vienna to find Anton Karras, and then the zither music begins to work on him the way it works on all of us, and of course it becomes the theme of the movie. Drazen takes that level of detail and care and love to every aspect of the film, and it is, if you love that movie, you will love it even more, and you will also definitely want to watch it again after you've read it. So it's a terrific book. I recommend it very highly for anyone who loves that movie which should be everyone. And next we come to the book that we've both read and both recommend. That's Silver Screen Fiend, Learning About Life from an Addiction to Film by Patton Oswalt, who's, of course, the uh, stand-up comedian and writer and actor. And this is his account of uh, becoming film-obsessed and haunting the new Beverly Cinema in Hollywood as a 
an augment to his uh, life as a young creator. It's a book that has a lot to say about films and about being a, a film fan and is also something I would recommend. Like if you have a plane trip or something where you know you're going to be a little foggy, but you still want to have a book to read, this is a good non-demanding quick read. Yeah, it, it, but it's not non-demanding in the lazy way. It's non-demanding because Patton Oswalt's narrative voice is, well, I mean, everyone knows Patton Oswalt's voice. It's that voice. It's friendly. It's welcoming. It's open. But Patton is sitting here. He's telling you about his history as a comic. He's telling you about how, what it takes to make it as an artist. He's telling you about, you know, his takeaways from life. And he's not particularly subtly bragging on all the cool films he got to watch. I would do all of those things with or without Patton Oswalt. So it was very much, you know, turning a corner and meeting a buddy and talking about film for the length of the book. It's darned enjoyable and aims at, I don't think a lot more, but it absolutely hits what it aims for. Next, we come to Suspects by the film writer David Thompson. Yeah, this is David Thompson. I think it's his only novel, and it's only a novel by courtesy. Thompson basically engages in a surprising, to me, amount of nerd. His theory is, if the same actor played different characters, those different characters are somehow the same person. And so he builds this bizarre, weird, interleaved noir narrative in which all kinds of people are being murdered and faking their deaths and sleeping with each other. And it's sort of an insane collection of biographical essays, basically, that as you read it unfolds into this insanely knotted, tangled up, messed up storyline, which in a way is the reading equivalent of watching a really great noir. And that, of course, is the place where most of these suspects come from is from noir films of the 30s, 40s, and maybe the early 50s. I, I don't know if anyone could justify it. It's not a great work of literature by any stretch of the imagination, but it is the project of a brain very similarly obsessive and messed up to mine. And I have sort of coveted a copy ever since I heard about it and finally found one at uh, Half Price Books, and now it is mine. Now, to spoil things a little, it seems like Austin, despite its motto of keeping things weird, was light on craziness, but fortunately seems to be heavy on monsters. Mm -hmm. And so that brings us to the Mammoth Book of Wolfman, edited by Stephen Jones. And this is a straight-up anthology of werewolf stories. Uh, the Mammoth Books, if people know these, half of them are just gigantic anthologies of sort of B to B plus to A minus stories. This is that again, but for werewolves, half of them are wild gallimaufries of all kind of essays and, and thoughts. That's like the one on King Arthur or the one on Jack the Ripper. This is the fiction one. I would love to read a mammoth book of, of Wolfmen that was the bizarre tail chasing essays, but this is the fiction. It's got a Manly Wade Wellman story that I probably have in another collection somewhere, but it's nice to see Manly Wade Wellman get the shout out. That is actually what made me say, if you're smart enough to pick a Manly Wade Wellman story, you're smart enough for me to buy a half price mammoth book of Wolfman. Now we come to the year's work at the Zombie Research Center by Edward P. Comenthal and Aaron Jaffe. This is a collection of essays about the zombie. This is sort of a gift for Sheila, but also tax deductible. Also tax deductible. And it talks about the zombie in the same way that every book about the zombie does. So we go back to Haiti. We talk about the ethnobotany of it. We talk about the anthropology. We talk about the religious aspects. Then we do, you know, film studies and cultural studies of, of zombies. So we get our gender zombies. We got queering the zombie. We get the whole Megillah. So if you went to a decent liberal arts school and you took a zombie class, this could be the textbook of it. Um, it's done with a bit of a tongue in cheek. It's a nice looking book that more than qualifies it as a place on my shelf. Then from a uh, kind of monster that can definitely hit you to one that maybe can or can't, A Natural History of Ghosts, 500 Years of Hunting for Proof by Roger Clark. Uh, this is a book that I've seen in uh, bookstores. I think when we went to the various museums at Dragon Meat, it was showing up in the bookstores there. It was a little and expensive. We Clark's list of ghost hunting equipment in an earlier episode. We did. And this was a, um, uh, a book that uh, was a little pricey for buying in London, but it turns out in Austin at half price, it's exactly what I want. And it is again, what it says on the, on the title, it sort of goes back to the uh, early enlightenment uh, people like uh, Glanville looking into ghost stories. Then of course we go through Dr. Johnson and the cock lane ghost. Then we have the society for psychical research and all those wonderful old boffins. And then we have, I suppose by we get to the modern era, we're going to get into the basic cable ghost hunting. I, 
assume that Roger Clark being a classy British guy who sold in museums will have nothing useful to say about that, but he'll get us all the way down to, at the very least, the turn of the century, I think, in, in pretty good style. And it's, you know, the sort of thing that if you're going to run a monster investigating game in any period from, you know, 1600 to now, probably want to have that book uh, somewhere handy on your shelf, as I do. The next one is one where I would think you spent very little time deciding whether it went in the pile. That's Vampire Forensics. Uncovering the Origins of an Enduring Legend by Mark Collins Jenkins. Yeah, this is written in cooperation or in cohort with a National Geographic special on the topic or a documentary, which I haven't seen. This is basically someone noticed all these vampire burials in Venice and the Balkans and elsewhere in Italy. And they said, is this a thing? Can we talk about this, at least for the length of a documentary? When you have a documentary in this modern era, Robin, you get a book. And this is the book on that sort of centering on not uh, the sort of is vampirism tuberculosis, but what's going on with all these bricks in people's mouths in various cemeteries in Europe. And it builds out from that to sort of talk about the vampire legend, the vampire myth. I feel like it's probably not going to blow anyone's doors off the way that Paul Barber's Vampire's Burial and Death did. But I also feel like it's a good, solid contribution to the vampire cemetery effect as it was practiced circa 1700, uh, circa the Adriatic Sea. If you like magic with a K, here it is twice. Secrets of the Magical Grimoires, the classical text of magic deciphered by Aaron Leach. I think that I say as much information as some people need when I say this is from Llewellyn, but it basically is... Leech going very rapidly through the main classical grimoire, sort of giving a little potted summary. So right there, it's helpful and useful. And then trying to draw out what would be the sort of common practices of grimoire magic. So all the grimoires say make a magic robe. And so there's a little chapter in Secrets of the Magical Grimoires on how to make a common denominator magic robe. There's sections on demons and angels. There's stuff on which demons and which angels you want to summon and how you do it. Uh, it being a Llewellyn book, there's a bunch of nonsense about shamanism that gets tacked onto the end. But most of it, I think, is a pretty good summa of grimoire magic as practiced from, say, uh, 1400 to 2000. And it's not going to blow anyone's doors off with its scholarship. But for a one-stop shop, I think it's probably going to be pretty good. And uh, will certainly be useful if anyone's wants to run a magic game without getting themselves too in over their heads with reading actual Golden Dawn tracts or whatever else. The thing about the Grail legend is if you tie it into the royal family, well, the royal family keeps updating. So here we come to The Blood of Avalon, The Secret History of the Grail Dynasty from King Arthur to Prince William by Adrian Gilbert. I know exactly as much about this book as you do. It is full of delight. Adrian Gilbert is an author not unknown to me. He is something of a uh, generalist of the occult. Uh, one might even perhaps call him a consulting occultist. He's written, you know, books about the Mayans and Magi and uh, pyramids and the Nazis and all kind of good stuff. He's just a journeyman working occultist trying to turn a buck. This is his sort of holy grail, sort of round table book. Arthur lineage was was very big for a while. It's still not unbig. This is his contribution to that storied tradition. And I think I mean both of those words literally. Right. And finally, a list that ends with Tobias Churton is not all that crazy because he is he's a believer. Uh, he rhapsodizes over things, but he's a respectable believer, eminently so. And so now we come to the spiritual meaning of the 60s, the magic, myth, and music of the decade that changed the world. Yeah, Robin, when I did the bibliography for Fall of Delta Green, I was trying to find one book that people who did not grow up marinating in the nonsense of the 1960s could read and be able to run a little bit with. And I feel like maybe this is the book that should have been in the bibliography if it had been out at the time. How rude of him not to have it out in time for that. Yeah, frankly, Tobias, maybe a fewer books about uh, Aleister Crowley and a few more books about the 60s would have helped everyone. But this is what it says. This is the notion that there was a genuine cultural efflorescence of magic that happened in the 1960s. As you say, Churton is a uh, believer or a saphead, as I think he might also be fairly called. <laughs> and it's very much the sort of wide-eyed woo-woo side of the 60s, but... It does give lots of names, lots of dates, lots of 
this guy was connected to this guy. Jimmy Page was reading this magic book and listening to this occult guru type information. There's not a lack of material to work with. No, there is not. And it is good to have it all between two covers and indexed, which is another quality that Churton's books have. And I haven't read it. I haven't gone all the way through it, so I don't know what it's missing. But I feel like if you have absorbed the information in this book, you are better able to run stuff involving the children of Chorazin or weird Cthulhu worshiping hippies or a rock and roll band that accidentally plays the yellow King or something else. I feel like this will provide you with that groundwork. If you are either too young or too well adjusted to have absorbed all the nonsense as it was pouring out. Well, Speaking of things being poured out, it's time for us to uh, pour one out for your poor uh, bookshelf, which will have to adjust to all of these uh, books when they arrive at your doorstep. And next week, we'll be back with fewer books, still some more movies, and probably a whole bunch of other nonsense besides. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Prowlgrain Press. Astvagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Protect the library that is our podcast by joining such bibliomaniacal backers as... Ian Nystrom. Joshua Randall. Yuri Horneman. Kelly Fisher. And Scott Stefanski. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Show your heroic readiness to get on with the scenario with our latest design, Premise Acceptor. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff.